Good morning. It's good to be together, and I'm, I'm eager to get into the Word together, but before we do that, I want to pray for us. Lord, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word. Father, we need to see your son. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us his glory. I pray that you would use my inadequate words, my weak words, to show your power and your wisdom. I pray that if there's anything that I say that is not from you, Lord, have mercy on me and let it fall away from our minds. But if there are things that I say that are true from you, speak to us about them. Lord, cause them to penetrate our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would be magnified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, I went and visited a few friends in New York City. And I remember we went all over the place. We uh, went up and down uh, Manhattan. We went to uh, Central Park. We rented bikes. Uh, We had good food. But I will never forget the moment when we made our way to Times Square. Maybe you've been there. It was like walking into another world. It was like everywhere I looked, there was a screen. There were lights flashing. If I had epilepsy, I probably would have had a seizure. Um, Crazy. Everywhere I looked, it seemed like they had stores for everything I could ever want. People were all moving. Everyone looked different. There was something beautiful about it in some way, and yet more than anything else, I was overwhelmed. I found myself sad, very sad, and a bit frightened by the allure that I felt into it, and yet even more just by the fallenness of all these people being in this place as this epitome of the fallenness of our world and the idols that we bow down to. And I I think about New York City and Times Square, and I think about a similar experience. I haven't been there, but probably would be similar walking down the strip in Las Vegas. In cities like these, our voices feel like whispers in a sea of noise. And it's easy to expect that words about Jesus might be the same. You might feel powerless to make any sort of change impact for good. So as we turn to our text this morning in Acts 18, we see that Paul comes to such a city, Corinth. And I want to give us a clear background and picture into what Corinth was like, because it wasn't so different from New York City or Las Vegas or a mingling of the two together. Sounds like a great city, right? It's important for us to see that. The city of Corinth had a lot going on. It was a capital city of that region. It was a gateway city situated at the crossroads of two bodies of water and two pieces of land. Highly trafficked trading routes 
And because of that, it was home to this very large population, the largest population in that region, comprised of Romans and Jews and Greeks and all other types of ethnicities, which created this melting pot of cultures. And like New York City, Corinth was a mecca for entertainment. It hosted the famous Ismithian Games, they called it where athletes and musicians came from all over every other year to compete in these games, show off their talent. Even like New York City's Wall Street, it was a center of trade, a hub of trade, people scratching and clawing for success. Religious diversity ranged from Judaism, as we see in the text, to various kinds of cults, to the worship of classic Greek gods as well, most notably Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, pleasure, and love. The temple of Aphrodite was perched up on a high place, and it was home to temple priestesses that were enslaved in the temple's prostitution. And we read in different people's accounts that they descended from the mountain upon the city every night, seeking worshipers of Aphrodite. And so it's not surprising then that Corinth was infamous for its sexual immorality, so much so that the term Corinthian was almost synonymous with one who is sexually immoral. It was a derogatory term. And Paul comes to this city. What that must have been like. We read that he finds a home with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And we don't know whether they're Christians yet or whether they're Jews. But we do find out later on that they became dear, dear friends of Paul. They were important in the early church. They shared the same trade. So he's able to work alongside them during the week, making tents. And then go to the synagogue every Sabbath to persuade the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And eventually we hear Silas and Timothy, fellow uh, laborers for the gospel, come. And they come, as we read in other places in the scriptures, they come with words of encouragement about the faith and love of the church in Thessalonica. They come with a financial gift from the church in Macedonia which provides them, provides Paul with the opportunity to be exclusively devoted to preaching. He doesn't have to work anymore. He can just be preaching the gospel. It says he was occupied with the word, constrained with it, couldn't do anything but speak the word of God. And yet, in classic form, the Jews reject the gospel in the synagogue. They degrade Paul. And we see this mysterious uh, response of Paul where he says, to their rejection, he washes his hands of them. He shakes out his garments. He said, you know what? Before, if I would not have preached the gospel to you, your blood would have been on my hands. But because I've preached the gospel to you, the bleakness of your future without Jesus is no longer on me, but it's on you. He gives them up to their rejection of Christ. And he goes to the Gentiles. 
He makes this marked shift in his ministry, which is very similar to almost every other instance in the book of Acts, because the gospel was coming to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And the irony is the Gentiles that he goes to, they're right next door. He goes right next door to them. And so we see this clear contrast in responses to the gospel. The Jews reject Jesus and the gospel, while many Gentiles, we read, come to faith and are baptized. And so there's a lot in Paul's ministry that's going well. The church is growing. Many are coming to know Jesus. Lives changed. Gospel transformation happening. He hears good news about other churches that are doing great. He's got financial provision. He's got a home. Good stuff, right? And yet we get a sense here, and we're going to talk about this, that he's still afraid. Why would he be afraid? He's the Apostle Paul, right? Think about it. So far in his travels, he's faced major opposition to the gospel. He's been reviled, as he is here, mocked, driven out of towns, Beaten, imprisoned, stoned, and left for dead. You got to wonder if that stuff is kind of hanging in the background, still affecting him, him. And a lot of times in the past, when it rained, it poured. And he's already felt a little bit of rain in Corinth. We have to wonder that whether amid the success, Paul's just looking over his shoulder, wondering when the Jews are going to come back after him. Because Typically, in the past, persecution followed ministry success. And so, later on in the section, that's what we see. The Jews come against Paul again. Granted, it's a year and a half later, which we'll talk about in a moment. Come against Paul, and they go to the Roman government. Hey, he's bothering us. Deal with him. They're they're fearful of their security with the government, their identity as the people of God, and their identity in the Roman Empire. And he's not harmed. He didn't even need to say anything. He's not harmed. The Lord was protecting me. And we see why. We see the promise that he had received from the Lord in verses 9 and 10. We read, The Lord came to him. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What a vision. But Paul's weak here. That's what we see. He's weak. And we get an even closer look that into his weakness in his letter to the Corinthian church that he writes later, 1 Corinthians, where he writes, I was with you in fear and weakness and much trembling. That's him talking about what it's like to be with the Corinthian church. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Think about a time when you stood before your life and it felt daunting. And you felt dreadfully inadequate for it. Fearful that you'd be able to do what needed to be done. Maybe it's providing for your family. Or loving your kids. 
or persevering in some specific kind of ministry that the Lord has called you to that feels like it's too much to bear and that it's going to break you. That's Paul here in Corinth. And Paul joins a long line of people in the Bible who experienced fear and weakness in the face of the Lord's call and needed encouragement. So we're in good company. Paul needed strong encouragement to lay aside his fear and keep preaching the gospel. He needed to be recommissioned. And the Lord did so with a gentle rebuke, fear not, a promise of his presence, I'm with you, full protection from harm, and a declaration that he had already set his heart on people of this city who had yet to hear the gospel. Unbeknownst to Paul, God was stirring in people's hearts, preparing them to hear the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And in the vision, we see Jesus enthroned in power, yet near to his people, fully able to protect his people in the midst of their weakness and fear, eager and ready to work in and through their weakness. To show his power. And all Paul had to do, go on speaking. Don't be silent. And Paul did. For the next year and a half, he remains with the Corinthian church, preaching and teaching the word of God. Think about that time period. Think back to July of 2019. Feels like a different world, right? July of 2019 to now. That's a year and a half or so, if my my math is right. It's a long time that Paul devoted to the Corinthian church. And it's no wonder that because of these strong ties that he's building with this church, that he writes two of his longest epistles to them. He loved them. And yet, what is it that Paul was teaching and preaching in Corinth? We hear that he's teaching the word of God. And yet, what what is it that he's preaching in the word of God, out of the word of God? In Luke's account here, in Paul, we don't get a sermon like we do elsewhere in Acts. We don't get a window into the content of his teaching. And yet, we do get a glimpse into the content of Paul's ministry in his epistle to to the Corinthians. Specifically, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles or your phones, I don't think it's going to be up on the screen um, because I didn't get these references to them in time. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. After this, I'd encourage you to, to read through this this week or even this afternoon and just sit with some of these things. We're going to sit with them here. And, and I, I think a principle that we can abide by when we're studying the Bible, it is, it is the best to let the Bible interpret itself. It's a great thing to be able to do. And here we're going to let 1 Corinthians, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, help us interpret Acts 18, at least a portion of it. Specifically, look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, so Acts 18, when I came to you, 
Brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And even more, to get back into the culture of Corinth, power and wisdom was prized in Corinth. Success, knowing, knowledge was prized. Not so different than in our culture. It was common during that time for well-known orators, well-known speakers would come to Corinth and they would schedule an event. They would charge people to come and listen to them talk about how to advance socially. Offering wisdom about how to climb the social ladder. It's a common occurrence there. They were the first century self-help gurus. And they charged their listeners, no small fee to hear this wisdom, how to gain security from success. Furthermore, in a different kind of way, so you have uh, in the public square these speakers that are speaking about how to get a better life. In the religious square... You have this specific cult called the cult of Isis. And the cult of Isis placed an emphasis on wisdom, spiritual wisdom. The Greek historian Plutarch describes Isis as the goddess exceptionally wise and a lover of wisdom to whom, as her name at least seems to indicate, knowledge and understanding are in the highest degree appropriate. Success is king and knowledge is the means of getting there here in Corinth. And so these words in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, leap off the page when we hear that because Paul didn't come in the same way that the well-known, beloved orators did in Corinth. He didn't speak to grandstands of paying customers with eloquent words of wisdoms on how to get a better life, be the best you, how to increase your hidden potential, or even get a bigger paycheck. He didn't even spout some form of higher spiritual knowledge only reserved for the spiritual elite. He didn't come as a strong sage, but a weak man with a simple message. Jesus Christ crucified. And Paul explains that again in 1 Corinthians 15. Speaks more about this good news. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Remember, Recalling back to Acts 18 when he was with the Corinthian church, the gospel that I preached to you, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the core of the gospel. These are events, events that happened that have massive implications. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was Paul's message. He declared to them that the Lord of heaven, who possessed supreme power, gave it up and became weak, became dependent. He departed from his lofty throne. 
to take up the lowly places of the world. He came to his own people, and they despised him, rejected him, and ultimately crucified him. And yet, they weren't the ones that actually took his life. He laid it down of his own accord. And he was glad to do so because he knew that his weakness, his defeat, his sacrifice would bring new life to those who would believe in him. For on the cross, this is it, Christ crucified, on the cross, Jesus died in the place of his enemies, taking the bullet of God's justice. He bore our sins so that we wouldn't have to before the Father. He willingly suffered defeat that those who believe would find victory over the real enemy, which is not flesh and blood, but sin and death. Christ triumphed over sin and death by enduring the weight of both on our behalf and laying them both in the grave. For he rose from the dead, and on the other side of his defeat, the living Jesus reigns in power, eager and able to forgive every sin and wash every stain for anyone who would ask for it. And that's not just for those people out there who are lost. We need that forgiveness. We need that cleansing every day, and he is willing and able to give it to us. That is our Christ. Who, how could anyone refuse such good news? Paul explains why in 1 Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians 8, 1.18, and then jumping to 22 and 25, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in 22, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, listen to this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The the cross is foolishness to the world and a stumbling block to the Jews. The cross was blasphemy to the Jews because it proclaimed that the Messiah had come, that God came in the flesh in Jesus, And that he had come not to bring freedom and liberation from the oppression of an earthly kingdom, the earthly kingdom of Rome via military power, but freedom from the kingdom of darkness and sin through laying down his life in weakness for his enemies. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. And it's foolishness Because it's sacrificial love. And sacrificial love makes no sense to the world. It's antithetical to the culture of Corinth, of New York City, of Harrisburg, of our entire society. It's antithetical. It doesn't make sense to a world that prizes power. And it's stupid to the strong, or at least those that think they're strong, because they don't think they need it. 
and the weakness of it is shameful to them. Beneath them. Furthermore, the consideration that the king of kings chose suffering and death at the hands of his enemies is foolishness if your life, if this life is all you've got. Because if this life is all you've got, you've got to hold on for dear life, lest you lose everything. And you've got to be sure to accumulate as much as you can to make sure you maintain as comfortable of a life as you can, free from suffering. And yet, even as it's folly to the Gentiles, stumbling block to the Jews, to we, to us, who have been called, the cross is wisdom and power. The wisdom of God and the power of God. For true wisdom is not an ascent into mystical and lofty places in order to gain knowledge and higher spiritual status, illumination, but it's a descent into lowly and destitute places for the sake of another's good. It's sacrificial love, true wisdom. And the power of a God prefers to radiate through defeat. Again, that's absurd to a, a culture that wants success, that is bent, that needs success. How could it be that the power of God prefers to radiate through defeat? In the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God takes the worst possible event. The worst possible event, the murder of the Son of God, and turns it into the most glorious event in human history. The most powerful event in human history. Only he can do such a thing. And power through weakness is the favored way of our God. He's powerful enough to make much out of little. And wise enough to know that that's the best way to do things. Why? Because all eyes are on him. It's one thing to be power enough, powerful enough to do great things. That's great. It's quite another to be powerful enough to do great things through weak things. Big things through small things. And you can look through the whole Bible and see that nearly every move of God, almost every servant of God, is weak. And every move of God involves his power being channeled through weakness. That's how he likes to work. And that's what Paul says even more about the Corinthian church's calling in 1 Corinthians 1. In verse 26 to 31. Look at that. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The people in the Corinthian church were not impressive people. They weren't college graduates. They may not have been high school graduates. 
They weren't eloquent speakers. They weren't born into money. They were ignorable, despised, and God chose them. God preferred them. He called them his own. And he did so that he might show the greatness of his power to do great things through weak and lowly people. And God's power through weak and despised things brings the world to its knees because it shows that it is worldly wisdom that's foolishness. It's the pursuit of sex on your, success, sex too, on your own terms. That's foolishness. It's the power of men that's actually weakness. The inability to give yourself for another is weakness. And I wonder how many of us wish we were smarter or wish we were stronger or better or more attractive or that you could pray better at community group or that you weren't suffering in the way that you are now or you weren't struggling with sin in the way that you are now. What's behind these longings? What for? So often our pining and pursuit of strength and smarts is ultimately for us that we might boast in ourselves, all the while discarding God's wisdom and power that radiates through our insignificance. We're not a big deal. The Corinthian church, they were not a big deal. And that's all right. How freeing is that? That we have a God that frees us up to be insignificant, even as he shows us that we are significant to him. Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Christ in him crucified was the word that he was preaching. And for us, Jesus and the cross of Jesus is all we have to offer the world. And all we have to offer is all the world needs. Or do we think that the world needs something else? Like better leadership. Or a better economy. Or better policy. Those are good good things. The world needs the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are called to be a people of the cross. Shaped by its wisdom, emboldened by its power, and known for its sacrificial love. The cross gives us everything, and yet it also asks everything. Our lives are no longer our own as a people of the cross. And as a people of the cross, that means that we lay down our rights rather than fight to hold on to them. To be a people of the cross is to be a people of the kingdom of God. That is not an earthly kingdom. America is not the kingdom of God. Contrary to what we hear a lot right now. And its prosperity does not mean that we are somehow favored by him in no way more than If my bank account is full and my family is healthy, does that mean that God prefers me and loves me and is on my side? Our citizenship is in a kingdom not of this world, and we are sojourners here. Ambassadors 
in outposts of his kingdom. Pointing to his higher kingdom that is open to all who would gather under the cross of Jesus Christ. One pastor I listened to this week said that we are, see- we are getting a front row seat to the world and some Christians that are longing for and laboring for the kingdom without the king. We want the, the principles of the kingdom, the good of the kingdom, like justice and flourishing and peace and righteousness, but we want it on our terms. Rather than letting the king define the terms of how we get it and what it's like. There's a pursuit of justice without the one who defines justice even more that has endured the full weight of God's justice on our behalf. We have the best news for the world that anyone can get in on that. Jesus promised that the way into the kingdom is through the cross. Only he can bring change for a heart of stone, to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that doesn't mean that in our culture right now, in our cultural moment right now, that we stick our heads in the sand and we get into this holy huddle and disengage from the world. That's not what it means. We labor to see good in our nation. We labor to see the unborn protected and cherished. We labor to see the the poor and the powerless protected and cherished. But the way in which we fight is not by securing a seat of power, but loving real people in real time, in real places as a people of the cross. And the world might hate us for it, but God forbid that the world would hate us for any other reason apart from the fact that we love the real Jesus and we are walking in his sacrificial love. So what do we do? We love and we pray. We love and we beg. As a body, the Lord invites us to love one another with sacrificial love right now. We can be different than our divided world. But only as we gather together under our crucified Lord. Because as we gather under the cross, Jesus tells us the truest things about us. Both of which we have in common, namely that we are sinners and that we are more deeply loved than you could ever imagine. So even if we disagree about things like mass, things like politics, fill in the blank. Can we not be together as the body of Christ? Can we not draw near to each other and have hard conversations and talk about maybe ways, not just that we disagree, but ways that we've hurt each other, sinned against each other? And yet what what a people of the cross does is we own up to our sin first. In those conversations, we can confess to one another, repent of sin, forgive. And it's only the cross that can make that possible. 
And the Lord invites us to that. So maybe there's people in our church that you need to approach and have those conversations. Say, you know what? This is where I'm at, and I've seen this in you, and, and let's have this conversation. We're both loved by the Lord. There's, there's sin on both sides of the camp. Let's just acknowledge that and come together. Even if, there, even if disagreement remains, the church can do that. And we can pray that our world would see that marvel of God's grace in us and see the power of God in our midst. And so instead of despairing and worrying about the future of our nation, which who knows what's coming, what if we pray that the Lord's kingdom would come? His kingdom, not our kingdom. What if God was on the move in some special way right now? Revival typically comes when the church is backed up against a wall. There's a lot of people that are disillusioned right now, fearful, angry, hopeless, and we have the hope of the world. So we do what the Lord called Paul to do in Corinth. We go on speaking. And even if we are harmed for it, we know that the Lord is with us and that he has many in this city, in our world, in our nation, that are his people. And he invites us unspectacular, weak, powerless people to join him as he brings his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray again that you would uh, speak your truth to us, that you would lead us and that we would be grounded and centered and rooted deeply in your cross. That we would cling to it. That we, we would point to it. That you'd have mercy on us, that you'd have mercy on our nation, your church as a whole, that you would bring your kingdom in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.